Hello there. Welcome back to The Layman's Historian, Episode 48, End of the Road. Last time, we covered Hasdrubal Barca's abortive attempt to join Hannibal in Italy and revive the flagging Carthaginian fortunes. The defeat at the Mataris spelled doom for Hannibal's campaign in Italy, freeing up Scipio to pursue his own plans to end the war. Although reduced to brutium and effectively cut off from his increasingly isolated Italian allies, Hannibal's mere presence in the peninsula threatened to stalemate the war indefinitely. The old guard of senators like Fabius Maximus still thought the Carthaginian too strong to be defeated openly, but they could offer no solution other than to continue delaying, harassing, and containing. A new voice, however, had different ideas. Publius Cornelius Scipio, fresh from his victories in Spain, returned to Rome in 205 BC, surrounded by the intoxicating glow of a glorious conqueror. Denied a triumph in spite of his nearly unprecedented achievements, the silver alone from his war booty totaled over 14,000 pounds, he nonetheless easily won the election to consul. With his senior command secured, he now advocated for an audacious attack on North Africa itself. As we have seen throughout this history, Scipio's plan was not novel in and of itself. Agathocles of Syracuse had invaded over a hundred years before Scipio, Regulus had attacked in the First Punic War, and even in the early days of 218 BC, the Senate had dispatched Tiberius Sempronius Longus to sail for North Africa before recalling him to face Hannibal at Trebia. Yet the intervening years of war and Hannibal's campaigns in Italy forestalled any attempts to mobilize an invasion fleet. And even now, many senators felt that diverting resources on a risky venture into the enemy heartland would border on recklessness. The ghost of Regulus and his disaster at the Bagratus River may have come to mind, and the old senators rallied around Fabius Maximus to reject Scipio's proposal. Livy reports on the lengthy and increasingly fractious debate which raged in senatorial circles. Scipio high-handedly replied to his elders stalling that, quote, he had been named consul with the object not merely of conducting the war, but of bringing it to an end. This could be achieved only if he personally took an army across to Africa, which he openly declared he would do by the people's authority if the Senate opposed him, end quote. As Fabius and then Scipio dueled in a series of heated speeches, the Senate at last flinched. It would not accept Scipio's challenge by outright forbidding him from invading North Africa. Instead, one consul would be held in Italy to contain Hannibal, and the other would cross over to Sicily with permission to invade North Africa, quote, if he judged it to be in the public interest, end quote. Fabius's final attempt at obstruction by denying Scipio the legal authority to conscript fresh soldiers was frustrated when thousands of men volunteered to follow Scipio, and allied communities donated tens of thousands of weapons and supplies for his army. For his fleet, Scipio pushed the shipwrights so relentlessly that Livy claims that 30 ships were ready to sail for Sicily a mere 45 days after the timber had been cut. Once in Sicily, Scipio took over command of the legions which had been left in the wake of Marcellus's departure. In a series of savvy political moves and PR stunts, 
Scipio managed to shift a large portion of the economic burden of the war to the Sicilians, a change which was especially useful given the lukewarm support he received from Rome. For instance, during one episode, Scipio selected 300 young Roman aristocrats, all men of exceptional physical strength and vigor, to wait on him personally. Following this, he summoned the Sicilian cities to provide 300 cavalrymen, fully armed and equipped, from among their noble youths. When the conscripts reluctantly appeared at the appointed time, Scipio asked if anyone wished to remain in Sicily and avoid the war. When one young man gathered the courage to say he would rather stay home, Scipio said the man was relieved of serving, on the condition that he gave his horse, weapons, and armor to one of the 300 Romans, and also that he trained the man to take his place. This the youth gladly agreed to do, and thus Scipio, in one swift move, armed, equipped, and trained a crack unit of Roman cavalry without costing the state a denarius. Although he had only received tentative permission with regards to North Africa, Scipio's behavior upon his arrival showed that he aimed at nothing less than the destruction of Carthage. He inspected the legions and selected grizzled veterans who had fought under Marcellus, believing them to be the best suited for the heavy siege work ahead. The survivors of Cannae, who, as we remember, had been practically exiled by the Senate to serve in Sicily following that disastrous defeat, were eager to cross into Africa to blot out their dishonor after over ten years of active service, and Scipio willingly obliged them. Troops were stationed among the Sicilian towns. Order was restored in Syracuse, which, once again, was rife with internal discord. Grain was strictly rationed to ensure that none went without, and, if his record in Spain is any indication, Scipio likely instituted an exacting training regimen to again turn his volunteers into quote-unquote athletes of war. A successful raid by Scipio's lieutenant, Laelius, on the North African coast fired the troops up even more for the impending invasion, and by 204 BC, Scipio judged that the time had come to strike. Besides vigorously training his army, Scipio had also carefully reconnoitered the ground on which he would be landing, including keeping tabs on the volatile political situation of the neighboring Numidian kingdoms. As we remember from episode 14, the Numidians were primarily divided into two tribes, the Massacilli in the west and the Massilii in the east. By the use of strategically situated fortresses and clever diplomatic maneuvering, Carthage had managed to play these rivals off one another to keep the region destabilized and thus dependent. During the Second Punic War, both Gaia, king of the Massilii, and Syphax, king of the Massacilli, had been intermittent allies of the Carthaginians, minus the usual number of rebellions and disputes, one of which, interestingly enough, involved Roman centurions training Syphax's Numidians in Roman manipular tactics. However, following the Battle of Alippa in 206 BC, the victorious Scipio had approached Syphax about switching allegiances. Intrigued by the offer, Syphax still refused to treat with anyone but Scipio himself, leading to a daring escapade in which the head of the Roman army in Spain crossed over into Africa with only two quinqueremes as his escort. By a quirk of fate, 
Hasdrubal Gizgo, the leading Carthaginian commander in Spain, had also stopped off in Syphax's city. An awkward situation ensued, where the Carthaginians feared to attack their adversary in a quote-unquote neutral port, while Syphax juggled the claims of his world's two greatest powers. Only Scipio seemed completely in his element, and at the banquet which Syphax hosted in honor of his two guests, the Romans so impressed not only the Numidian king, but also his Carthaginian rival, that Hasdrubal left with a sense of doom about the fate of his country. For all the brilliance of this diplomatic coup, it would prove only transitory. Outwitted in words, Hasdrubal fell back on a time-tested tactic. Love. Scipio might be a charming conversationalist, but Hasdrubal's daughter, Sophonisba, was a born queen. The chroniclers spare no words in describing her many accomplishments. Diodorus Siculus states that Sophonisba was, quote, comely in appearance, a woman of many varied moods, and one gifted with the ability to bind men to her service, end quote. Cassius Dio emphasizes how she was, quote, clever, ingratiating, and altogether so charming that the mere sight of her, or even the sound of her voice, sufficed to vanquish everyone, even the most indifferent, end quote. Highly educated in music and literature, Sophonisba would be a crown jewel in any royal court, and when Hasdrubal Gizgo dangled the prospect of marriage before Syphax, the old king leapt at the offer. Under his beautiful young queen's influence, he once again became a staunch ally of the Carthaginians. Although Hasdrubal had reason to be proud of this diplomatic counter-coup, there was one loose end to the whole scheme. Sophonisba had been betrothed to Massinissa, the youthful Numidian prince of the Massilii, whom we met back in episode 44. Having fought gallantly for the Carthaginians in Spain, Massinissa was, shall we say, less than pleased to find that his elderly rival had stolen a march on him in his absence. To make matters worse, Massinissa's father, Gaia, died, and the Massilii kingdom collapsed, leaving Syphax to devour the remains. The loss of his patrimony forced Massinissa to live as an outlaw in the mountains, brooding and biding his time. When Scipio's envoys arrived with offers of alliance, they found Massinissa more than willing to oblige. All this was known to Scipio through reconnaissance, and at last, having painstakingly prepared his men and campaign, he launched the invasion. Ironically, his fleet sailed from the former Carthaginian stronghold of Lilibaeum, and, crossing from Sicily in 204 BC, Scipio landed at the ancient Phoenician town of Utica. Although news of Scipio's preparations must have leaked through to the Carthaginians, they were still relatively unprepared to repel the major Roman force which landed at their doorstep. Livy gives a gripping description of the chaos which rippled from the Roman landing. Quote, the sight of the fleet at sea, followed by the noise and bustle of disembarkation, had already caused panic in the neighboring towns, as well as in the farms along the coastal strip. In addition to the crowds of people and jostling columns of women and boys which had blocked all the tracks for miles around, herds of cattle were being driven off to safety by the farmers, 
so that the impression was of a sudden evacuation of the whole countryside. To the towns, the fugitives brought panic even worse than their own. To Carthage especially, where the terror and confusion were almost like that of a captured city. The panic was rendered all the more acute by the fact that since the landing, nearly fifty years previously, of the consuls Regulus and Manlius, the city folk had never seen a Roman army, nor anything worse than marauding Roman fleets. End quote. Despite his seniority, the general on the scene, Hasdrubal Gizgo, inspired little confidence, especially given his lackluster record in Spain. Initial attempts to stall the Roman advance did nothing to raise the dejected spirits in Carthage. Two hastily assembled cavalry contingents were easily defeated by Scipio and the resurgent Massinissa, who had emerged from his mountain hideout to reclaim his kingdom after a string of heroic adventures. Having become engaged in a running battle with Syphex's warriors, a wounded Massinissa and five companions had plunged into a raging river to avoid death or capture. Two of his companions drowned in the endeavor, and Syphax's men, seeing the ferocity of the waves, figured that the young Numidian prince had suffered the same fate. Instead, however, Massinissa survived and remained hidden in a cave while his wounds healed. Then, in a move of startling bravery, he rode almost unattended into his father's old kingdom, declaring himself as the rightful king. Such was his popularity that within days he went from being a fugitive near death to commanding an army of nearly 10,000 men. Yet the wheel of fortune turned rapidly again, for Syphax would not lose his newly conquered lands without a struggle. He severely mauled Massinissa in the ensuing battle, leaving the latter with no choice but to flee to Scipio with what troops remained loyal to his person. The Allies put Utica under a strict siege, but due to the lateness of the campaign season and the city's strong defenses, they were forced to retire to winter at the mouth of the Bagratus. Both sides used the winter interim to their advantage. Aware that a huge factor to the Carthaginian military success lay in their use of the Numidian light cavalry, Scipio tried once again to lure Syphax away from his allegiance. The latter was still too enthralled by his bride to switch sides again, but he did offer to serve as a mediator between Carthage and Rome, since he was gravely worried about the repercussions of a major war on his own soil and naively thought that he could broker peace between two of the world's greatest powers, which had fought one another for over 14 years. Scipio played this for time sending disguised centurions with the negotiators in order to scout out the Carthaginian and Numidian camps. Then, without warning, Scipio simultaneously launched an assault on both camps, killing numerous soldiers and abruptly ending peace talks. Both Hasdrubal and Syphex escaped the disaster, and they soon found their surviving army bolstered by new recruits and 4,000 Celtiberian mercenaries from Spain. Encouraged by this influx of new troops, the two generals agreed to face Scipio once more. At the Battle of the Great Plains, Hasdrubal's 30,000-strong force, the final Carthaginian army between Scipio and the capital, would cast its final die. The Romans deployed in their usual triplex Achis, with the Roman cavalry facing Syphax's Numidians and Massinissa's Numidians facing the Carthaginian cavalry. 
Hasdrubal's hardy Celtiberians held the Carthaginian center along with his new recruits. Despite the hopes placed in this force, the battle proved short and decisive. Both the Roman cavalry and Massinissa's detachment destroyed their opponents in the first charge, and the Carthaginian infantry fled soon after. Only the Celtiberians, aware that Scipio would not deal mercifully with them should they fall into his hands, fought until the end. The Battle of the Great Plains would prove so crushing a defeat that Syphax retreated back to his own kingdom, while the disgraced Hasdrubal Gizgo was summarily exiled from Carthage, later committing suicide in his family mausoleum. Never one to rest on his laurels, Scipio dispatched his chief lieutenant Laelius, along with Massinissa, to mop up Syphax's kingdom. A disordered skirmish ensued with the retreating Numidians under Syphax, and unfortunately for the old king, he was captured when his wounded horse threw him. Radiant and triumphant, Massinissa brought his regal captive to Syphax's capital of Serta, where, after calling all the leading men of the city together, he presented their former king to them in chains. The city quickly capitulated, hailing Massinissa as their new rightful king. It was at this moment that Sophonisba reappeared. Beautiful as ever, she flung herself at Massinissa's knees, saying in the words of Livy, quote, God and your own valor and happy fortune have given you power to do with us as you will. But if a captive may have leave to plead before the master of her life and death, if she may touch his knees and his victorious hand, I humbly beg by the royal majesty which yesterday was ours, by the name of the Numidian people which you and Syphax shared, by the gods of this house whom I pray to receive you with kindlier omens than those with which they bade Syphax farewell, that you grant grace to me, your suppliant and captive, and yourself determine my fate as your heart may prompt you and not subject me to the arrogant and brutal whim of any Roman. If no other way is possible, then I earnestly entreat you to save me from the Roman's will by death. End quote. Captivating by the woman's breathtaking beauty, the conqueror was himself conquered, and Massinissa promised to save her. After revolving in his mind how this might be done, he arranged an impromptu wedding, marrying Sophonisba in order to shield her from Rome's wrath. What the lovely queen thought of this change in kingly husbands is not recorded, but somehow it is difficult to think that she mourned long over the exchange of an elderly old man for the dashing Numidian prince. When Laelius arrived a few days later with the plotting infantry, his anger was so great that he nearly dragged Sophonisba out of the marriage bed to lead her in chains to Scipio. In the end, he relented just enough to agree to refer the matter to his commander. Meanwhile, Scipio closely questioned his former friend Syphax on what had made him go back on his word to the Romans. Consumed by rage and jealousy, the old man said madness had come upon him, quote, at the moment when he received a woman of Carthage into his house. It was those nuptial torches which had set his palace aflame, she was the poison in his blood, but in his current desperate state, he yet had one thing to solace his misery. The knowledge that this same monster of iniquity had transferred her corrupting influence to the house and home of his bitterest enemy. End quote. 
Alarmed by the old man's words and the report which arrived from Lyelius, Scipio summoned Massinissa. After congratulating him on his victory and giving a somewhat long-winded discourse on the need to conquer the lusts of the flesh, Scipio demanded that Sophonisba be handed over to him for a Roman triumph. Grieved to his soul, Massinissa withdrew to his tent to weep and consider his options. At last, he called a trusted slave and gave him the poison, quote, which all kings keep against the changes and chances of fortune, end quote. Mixing the draught, Massinissa ordered the slave to bring it to his bride, saying that, quote, he would gladly have kept the first promise which a husband owed to his wife, but that since those who had the power robbed him of the freedom to do so, he was keeping his second promise, not to let her fall alive into the hands of the Romans. End quote. When the slave delivered his message in the cup, Sophonisba answered, quote, I accept this bridal gift, a gift not unwelcomed if my husband has been unable to offer a greater one to his wife. But tell him this, that I should have died a better death if I had not married on the day of my funeral. End quote. Even the habitually hostile Livy was moved to admiration, admitting that, quote, they were proud words, and no less proudly she took the cup and calmly drained it with no sign of perturbation. End quote. So died the princess of Carthage. When Scipio heard of Massinissa's act, he alternately consoled and chided him for his haste, and, according to Livy, quote, for importing into the whole affair a quite unnecessary note of tragedy, end quote. Nonetheless, he rewarded his young ally richly for his work in defeating Syphax and Hasdrubal Gizgo, for now Carthage would have little option but to sue for peace. When the envoys predictably arrived from Carthage towards the end of 203 BC, Scipio's terms were harsh but acceptable. Carthage would relinquish all overseas territories, nearly all of which she had lost already. Her navy would be limited to 20 quinquiremes, and she would be forced to pay an annual tribute and indemnity to Rome of 5,000 talents. Scipio's reason in proposing a tenable peace plan was likely the fear that, with his consulship term running out, he would be defeated in the elections, and a successor would claim the glory of ending the war. Indeed, both the Roman and the Carthaginian senates nearly ratified the treaty, until news arrived that Hannibal had returned to Africa. The recall had come while he was still encamped in southern Italy. When Hannibal heard the news, quote, he groaned and gnashed his teeth, and could hardly refrain from tears, saying, For years past they have been trying to force me back by refusing me reinforcements and money, but now they recall me no longer by indirect means, but in plain words. Hannibal has been conquered not by the Roman people whom he has defeated so many times in battle and put to flight, but by the envy and continual disparagement of the Carthaginian Senate. It will not be Scipio who will be wild with triumph and delight, but rather Hanno, whose only way of ruining me and my house has been by ruining Carthage. End quote. Despite these bitter accusations, Hannibal had long known that the summons would come, and he had his ships waiting. Says Livy, quote, Seldom, we are told, 
Has any exile left his native land with so heavy a heart as Hannibal's when he left the country of his enemies? Again and again he looked back at the shores of Italy, accusing gods and men and calling down curses on his own head for not having led his army straight to Rome when they were still bloody from the victorious field of Cannae. Scipio, who in his consulship had never seen a Carthaginian enemy in Italy, had had the audacity to march on Carthage, while he, when a hundred thousand Roman soldiers had been killed at Trasimene and Cannae, had been content to grow old in idleness. End quote. Alone he had held out in Italy for sixteen years, and yet he would never enter Rome as a conqueror. As he sailed for home in 203 BC, his septuagenarian rival, Quintus Fabius Maximus, breathed his last. As the poet Aeneas wrote, quote, one man, by his delaying, saved the state. End quote. With Hannibal returning to Carthage, the stage was set for the final showdown of the Second Punic War. Next time, we will cover Zama. Until then, take care and read more history. Music